this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, we are here today to meet uh, Dr. Jonathan Chen, who is the Section Chief of the Congenital Cardiac Surgery Program at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, and uh, discuss a little bit about um, mechanical circulatory support and uh, heart transplantation in the pediatric population. In the pediatric uh, population, and I am uh, Kasti Bamanapati, one of the um, CT fellows at the University of Washington uh, Medical Center. Thank you, Dr. Chen. Sure, Kasti. Um, so, briefly, what is uh, the importance and the um, uh, sort of incidence of heart failure in congenital heart disease uh, in the U.S. today? That's a good question. I don't know if anyone knows what the incidence is. I think our perception is that it's definitely um, rising because, in a good way, we're developing or more kids are surviving the complex uh, newborn operations that we do. and. Unfortunately, some proportion of those kids will get heart failure over time, and as more of those kids survive, obviously more kids will enter the pipeline as heart failure kids. But there are also um, kids who have structurally normal hearts who will go into heart failure, and um, they can. Uh, it used to be that the population we transplant would be between probably 80% structurally normal hearts and 20% congenital. Now it's flipped. Mm. It's probably about 60% congenital and probably 40% structurally normal hearts. And the reasons kids with structurally normal hearts will get cardiomyopathy, it can be, um, sometimes it can be arrhythmogenic, although that's pretty infrequent. Um, there are some inborn errors that will give you um, primary cardiomyopathy. Um, ischemia is pretty rare, unless it's a kid who had an undiagnosed alkappa that gets fixed too late and their function never recovers. Um, and uh, for the most part, the, cardi the um, uh, myocarditis, the burned out myocarditis kids tend to be a little bit later in life, meaning they, they're in the single digits to adolescence. They don't tend to present when they're babies. Um, but more and more we see what we call non-compaction, which is this um, kind of a funny echocardiographic diagnosis that was popularized in the 80s, sort of went out of fashion for a while, but it refers to um, kind of a gestalt feeling when you look at the echocardiogram that the ventricle in particular the left ventricle, the muscle looks a little bit primitive, meaning that it looks sort of frond-like and, and um, irregular. And those kids, we presume, have an inherited uh, cardiomyopathy, and the non-compaction just is, it sort of, um, uh, you know, arrests their development somewhere along the way as the myocytes become more um, mature, and they just get frozen somewhere along in that evolution, and their function just never recovers. So as we uh, come across these um, patients, uh, and we're thinking about workup. What uh, types of workup does a surgeon really want to uh, get? Is it just an echo that's enough, or with the advent of cardiac CT and cardiac MRI, uh, do they provide additional anatomic definition for, for these types of cases? Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of depends. Um, I think it's pretty rare for kids to get uh, the full evaluation without winding up with um, certainly an echo and most often a cath. And the cath is really not so much to determine architecture as it is to determine their uh, pulmonary vascular uh, resistance. And the, the difference with kids, in particular from adults, um, and this is whether the kids are um, uh, primary, never been operated on, and still have, for example, a ductus, or kids who have had many um, cardiac operations, either palliative or reparative, uh, which is that it's really hard to um, 
uh, calculate pulmonary vascular resistance when you have different sources of pulmonary blood flow. So if you have a kid who's got a shunt and collaterals and anti-grade flow, uh, it makes the PVR very hard to estimate. And so we tend to put some credence on, or maybe more credence than the adults do on transpulmonary gradient um, because that's a sort of a poor man's version of the vascular resistance. Um, some people put a lot of emphasis on the uh, pulmonary diastolic pressure because they feel like that's a, a better um, estimate of that. So those kids, so kids will pretty commonly get a cath. They will definitely get an echo. And if there's any question about the reconstruction part, then we go for the advanced imaging. So that would be a kid who said several prior operations, usually not in your, your institution, so you're not familiar necessarily with what the prior uh, technical components sure. were. Those are the kids who sometimes we will punt up and get a 3D reconstructed CT scan or an MRI, but by and large, we don't get them very frequently, to be honest. Um, the, and, and the kids who come in really dying, you don't have time to do that, so they'll come in and be put immediately on ECMO or something as a bridge, and so then it just complicates their ability to have advanced imaging. The most important thing we think about when we're considering, in particular, the congenital kids who are several operations in, one is, is whether they're um, panel reactivity, their immunologic profile is, is uh, prohibitive, and that's because they would have been exposed to um, blood transfusions at every operation. So take, for example, a single medical kid who has a, a Norwood, and then a Glenn, and then a Revision, and then a Fontan. At each of those operations, they've been exposed to blood. So by the time they're ready for transplant, they're 99% panel reactive, and that can be the difference between waiting you know, a couple months for a transplant and waiting 18 months for a transplant. And then the other thing um, that is really important as part of the workup is um, uh, to establish what your um, modes of access are going to be, because a lot of these kids, if they've had you know six prior sternotomies, you have to be prepped for the fact that you might have to go on peripheral bypass, mm -hmm. and it's not going to be necessarily a teenager where you can just go on the groin and don't worry about things. It's going to be a you know five-year-old failing Fontan who's, I don't know, 20 kilos, and then your access issues are, are considerably limited. And so it's nice to know that, you know, the neck vessels are open, the groins are open, the axillary is open. If you had to go on sucker bypass, you could do this, that, and the other. That's where I think it's nice to, and that's just ultrasound. That's pretty simple to get. Um, but it's pretty rare for us to list somebody without having all those, um, you know, uh, boxes checked. So um, you talked about transplant, and so I'm just going to run with that for a second. Um, and some of this you've already talked about, but in, in today's regions and how um, organ allocation occurs and so on and so forth, what are some of the challenges of, of listing and prioritization in pediatric heart, heart transplant? Well, right now, in 2016, kids still maintain privilege, meaning that if you're under 18, you get the highest ranking with UNOS based on your, your uh, just age to begin with. It still is proportional to a list, so it just it still is proportional to whether you're status one or status uh, you know, 1A, 2, et cetera. Um, so severity matters, and uh, for the most part, blood type matters. The part that gets a little bit tricky is uh, kids under, depending on where you are, probably about 14 months of age usually, can be listed across blood groups because of the ability to do ABO incompatible transplants. Um, so that broadens your ability to get some donors, but it makes your perioperative care a little complicated. The results are actually just as good, it just makes the perioperative care complicated. And so the, the algorithm that you have to sort of consider is where do these kids fit on the spectrum of what kind of donors you see? So take a, you know, the perfect ex candidate is a adolescent who's blood type AB, because there's somebody who's has the wealth of donors available to them. So if you are, say, a smallish 13-year-old kid 
you could accept a large five-year-old's heart, and you could accept a small 25-year-old's heart. And if you're blood type AB, you can accept anybody's blood type. And so, you know, you'll be top of the list because you're a pediatric patient. You have this wealth of, of heart sizes that are available to you that would be fine, actually, and in terms of size matching. And so if I look at a kid that's like that and they're looking sort of sour, we might gut them out in the ICU and not put them on mechanical support because we think they're going to get transplanted in a week or two. And you can pretty much guarantee that's a, that's a pretty good rule of thumb that if, they're, if they have all those ducks in a row and things look pretty good, you have a pretty good chance of being transplanted quickly. And just like adults, if you have a big kid who's an O and they, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the options are limited, we'll put a device in them because they're going to wait a long time, and that's just true no matter where you are. Okay. The regions are the regions. Some are, um, uh, you know, uh, region six, for example, where you and I are working, has um, geographical challenges because the next state is so far away. Mm-hmm. So our ischemic times tend to be kind of long. Whereas mm-hmm. when I was in New York, those a lot of those donors came locally from just across town, mm-hmm. and so. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're waiting longer or shorter, um, because I think we still, a newborn in New York still waits six weeks to get transplanted, uh, but it does change your um, thresholds to take certain kinds of donors when you know the ischemic time is going to start at four and a half hours. So you have to make sure that donor is perfect when you're doing that. So as far as um, a little bit more getting into the technical challenges and the specifics um, of heart transplantation, um, what are you thinking about as far as operative planning and the approach? And I know you've touched on some of these uh, topics, but you know, liver dysfunction, kidney dysfunction, multiple stranotomies in the past, multiple transfusions. How does all of this? What do, What do you think about? How do you plan this out? Um, well, the, some of the stuff you're talking about um, gets pre-planned, meaning the the actual technical tab A, tab A, tab B, tab B, that kind of stuff. You can you can work that through and have a game plan A and a plan B and a plan C. It's really important, I think, for the ones where it's um, where it's kids, and particularly congenital kids, where you know ahead of time that you have to do work on systemic venous return and pulmonary arteries and arch and something else, is to, in your mind, plot that whole operation out so that you're efficient. So, for example, you can do... Normally we'd wait, and the best version of the arch reconstruction is use donor aorta and reconstruct the whole thing once the heart comes back. But let's say you know that the donor's coming is going to come from far away, like five hours. That's not an operation you want to be starting at that point because then the whole scheme of time is going to be really long. So maybe the smart thing to do in that case is go on bypass, cool down, do the arch first, and as you're rewarming, do all prep for all the other stuff so that when the donor heart comes back, you just sew it right in. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big proponent of that, of the pre-planning to... Um, make it so that when the heart comes back into the room, you're ready to just put it right in. Now, you've touched on the other end organ dysfunction stuff, and that can be very important because a lot of these kids who come, who've been waiting in the ICU, will have renal dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we don't, I wouldn't say commonly we would put in a dialysis catheter, but in the kids where the axis is hard, and it's kind of the tweeners because we don't usually dialyze babies because it's hard to do that. But the kids who are in the kind of single digits to lower adolescent range, if they're having renal dysfunction, it's not a bad idea to leave a dialysis catheter in just so that they, if nothing else, the ICU can do, um, you know, uh, zero balance ultrafiltration in the first couple of days just to make sure that they're not fluid overloading a new heart with a little bit of RV dysfunction. I've been surprised, I have to say, from my mechanical support time with Yoshinaka that um, he was a pretty aggressive CVDH person just to tweak the right heart along. And um, his feeling was that the that higher CVPs hurt both your liver, which is true for sure, as we know from the Fontans, but hurt your renal function. And so he was he was pretty aggressive about CVDH 
the patients were right out of the operating room, and they did well. And so I, I definitely um, ascribe to that when, it, when mm. it's needed. I think something that's very curious to our audience would be the specific considerations that you have when transplanting a structurally normal congenital heart surgery patient. Could you help us understand how you think and what your operative strategies are, specific techniques that you use uh, during this particular operation? So, Casti, you've asked me about um, key steps and the sequence to the heart transplant in a structurally normal heart. And I think there are a few things that um, have been ingrained in me over time. Most of them I've learned from Yoshinaka. Um, starting with the uh, recipient cardiectomy, I think it's important once you have the clamp on uh, to transect, to try to leave as much native tissue as you can. So tra transect your SVC low, so at the cable atrial junction, and transect your IVC high. And I think one of the important things to remember is that you want to be as high as to be just skimming the bottom of the coronary sinus. Um, I sometimes will put a tagging stitch on the IVC cuff because um, even with the best of intentions and with a snare in place, you can lose control of that and it, it sort of disappears below the diaphragm. So if you want to make sure you don't lose control of a short appearing cuff, is put a stay stitch on that. Um, leave as much of the great vessels as you can. You can always trim them later and you may want to use them to make up for differences if the donor team has brought back two little great vessels. So I'd say leave them long in the beginning cauterize as much stuff as you can once the heart is out because that's the last time you're going to get a good look at all the stuff that's in the posterior mediastinum in particular the left atrial cuff there's so much muscle and if it's a re-op all that area bleeds quite a bit so we used to spend quite a bit of time uh, controlling that over sewing little bleeders because once the new heart is in you'll have no access to that area and it can be considerable in terms of the bleeding I always vent the left atrium uh, in some way, shape, or form, and that can be leaving a vent in that you sew into the left atrial cuff, or in general, I put a separate, st a separate stitch in one of the pulmonary veins and snake a, uh, a drain, th a uh, vent through there. And that's just because the likelihood of um, distension is not trivial, and sometimes there's a lot of pulmonary venous return, uh, and that's something you want to be able to control so the heart doesn't get warm. And there's it not infrequently we'll put two vents in if there's quite a bit of pulmonary venous return. Now, if when you do the cardiectomy, you find there's a lot of pulmonary arterial return, which sometimes happens, um, I actually get control of the branch PAs and snare them because, again, that kind of warm blood will, over time, while you're spending so much time focused somewhere else, can actually warm up the graft uh, once it's already in it, and that's a, a real problem. Now, when it comes to the implant for a structurally normal heart, my order of, of anastomoses, which is just out of habit is left atrium, IVC, SVC, PA, and aorta. I very rarely will do left atrium, aorta, take the clamp off and do everything else unclamped because I think it's just um, too, too painful. I very rarely uh, will give an extra dose of cardioplegia even when the cross clamp time is long. Um, if uh, I'm um, uh, venting not through a separate purse string, so if it's just a drop-in vent, sometimes you can just include that vent in your LA suture line and don't complete the suture line fully. And that's, in particular, that's important if you're going to do a biatrial anastomosis. So if you have a biatrial anastomosis and you're just going to include your vent, then you have to remember that you're going to start and finish your suture line outside of where the new atrial septum is going to be because otherwise you won't have access to that once your um, second, your right atrial anastomosis is created. It's all made much easier if you put a separate um, purse string in the superior pulmonary vein and just drop in the sucker through there. That's a much easier way to do that. Um, there's most often a mismatch in size between the donor and recipient IVC. The recipient IVC will be bigger just because it's been under a much larger 
um, uh, CVP, uh, assuming you haven't upsized the donor too much. So uh, I would say don't be surprised if you end up with a dog ear at that point. If you're good either way, you can always make up for the difference and um, make an incision up into the donor right atrium and make the, the size mismatch work. Um, in general, when you, if you're doing bicaval, um, you'll end up trimming the donor SVC to be appropriate. And you don't, you do not want to leave, you don't want this to be um, uh, redundant because you, you can get a kink there pretty easily. So I trim the donor SVC almost always uh, below the level of the donor asgus vein so that you're basically going through the tie that the donor team has created there. Um, I usually run the back wall and then I intermittently lock the front wall so that you don't end up with stenosis at that point. And obviously if there's any question at all, you can always stop your suture line and put in interrupteds if there's a question. And, and sometimes in the little kids that can be a problem. I trim the pulmonary artery very short as Eric Rose once taught us so as to cut it right above the commissures. It may or may not need to be that short, but it needs to be pretty short. And the dogma that the pulmonary artery will always stretch is true. So even if you take, even if your recipient pulmonary arteriotomy is at the branch point of the branches and you trim your donor just above the commissures, it's probably going to be just about right. Anything more than that and you risk a kink at the pulmonary artery anastomosis. And that's fairly common actually to get a, a kink there. So the, the more you can resect, the better off you'll be. I bevel the recipient aorta so that it's not um, uh, perfectly flush and that will give it a little bit of a curve. Sometimes that'll make up for a difference if you have um, any curvature at all to your pulmonary artery also. It just gives a little more room in the back. Um, and as a final note, um, I think the uh, two areas of um, importance when you're weaning from cardiopulmonary bypass, one is don't ever try to wean a transplant patient until your um, rhythm is under control. And that can be under control, meaning you could be AV pacing. But sometimes if you're in some variant of heart block, it's worth it just waiting on bypass until you get a real rhythm back, because that can be the difference between uh, weaning off and being um, successful and having a pretty short postoperative course and weaning off and really having um, a, a rocky time uh, after that. The other thing which was a uh, central dogma to us when we were at Columbia was a, um, it's a rule of thumb that just keeps you honest. No matter how fast or well the operation is going, it keeps you honest with regard to your cold ischemic time. So the rule of thumb is that you take the number of minutes of cold ischemia, you divide by 10, and that's the number of minutes that you should wait for warm perfusion, i.e. once your clamp is off and you're starting to rewarm in the room. So for example, if you have an operation that goes along swimmingly, but the ischemic time, the cold ischemic time is six hours. Uh, so that's six hours, it's 360 minutes, you divide by 10, that's 36 minutes. You need to wait 36 minutes fully on bypass, warming up and then fully rewarmed before you try to wean from cardiopulmonary bypass. And while it's not a hard fast rule in terms of you know, if it wean at 34 minutes, it's no worse. It does keep you honest as to the amount of time you should be waiting of warm ischemia because you don't want to try to wean too soon because sometimes you can wean successfully initially and then it's terrible afterwards once you get protamine. So I found that having a little patience during the rewarm and waiting before you actually wean is very important and then obviously having synchrony and, and being on the right amount of, of uh, support um, oftentimes with nitric oxide is also really important too. So um, let's switch gears a little bit, but, but sort of follow where you just left off with regards to mechanical circulatory uh, support. Um, univentricular beds, biventricular beds, miniaturization, pumpkin trial, there, there are lot, there's a lot to talk about there. Mm -hmm. um, so can you tell us a little bit more about where we are, where you envision this technology should be going um, and how you optimize what we have today 
uh, for patients who are not exactly ready for transplant or perhaps are transferred to you with a device and need to upsize and, and maybe even use it as a bridge to recovery. Mm -hmm. I think the where we are part, um, we can break it down sort of by size. So for the older kids, and that older now means you know, adolescents and up and maybe even a little younger than that, the durable, implantable, left-sided devices or single ventricular support devices like HeartMate and Heartware, are, Heartware in particular, are small enough that you can support smaller kids, send them home, etc. You obviously you have to have the lung function to do that, and you have to have enough what you would call a subpulmonary ventricle, for lack of a re better term, because you know what if you have what if you're a failing Fontan, you're going to be supporting their single ventricle, but they've got to get blood flow to the lung somehow, and they can if they're if that's the problem. But the um, the hard part is the smaller kids, obviously. So where we are right now is the Berlin Heart is the only FDA approved device. We do a lot of we use a lot of devices off label, as everybody did did and do. Um, but those, all those will tether you, and to some extent the Berlin too, to the hospital because you can't leave with those. They are flexible, like PD Mag is something you can put in left side advice, right side advice, both. You know, um, you can make it into ECMO, you can take it out, and I like that flexibility. That's helpful. The mid-sized kids are the challenging guys because it's hard to um, jerry-rig the device to meet the kid. So mm -hmm. there comes a lower limit of implantable device, for example, where you just, you'll suck down the ventricular cavity if they're, if it's not, if the EDP, the EDV is not big enough to support a, an implantable device, so you're sort of left with whatever we got. Now the pumpkin trial has been winnowed down to one device, which is about to be um, uh, trialed, which is roughly the size of a AA battery or so, it's pretty cool, and hopefully it will work. And certainly the next iteration of both HeartMate and HeartWare are continuous flow, smaller, golf ball sized implantable devices and hopefully when they come out they'll be um, they'll be something we can use in kids obviously it'll all be off label the there's no question as with the early years of VADs and adults that if you don't need ECMO you're better you're better off on a VAD meaning if you can get the kids extubated and up and walking and uh, rehabbing they are much better transplant candidates just mm -hmm. as the adults were in the 1990s it's, sure. it's sort of just recreating that whole experience again the kids have a lot of trouble with anticoagulation though, because the devices are small, the flows are low, and um, a lot of them have, so for example, the lower size Berlin hearts have, um, rather than having valves, because the, like pig valves or whatever, because the, or mechanical valves, because it, as the Toyota does, um, they have polyurethane valves, and those are particularly thrombogenic, and that's just a function of how you can't make them that small to fit in any device. So it's hard, you have to really ramp up the anticoagulation on these kids, which has its own, you know, uh, Morbidities associated with it. Any um, any thoughts about um, sort of retransplantation and um, the post transplant management in some of these pediatric patients? Because the thought is that they're going to live for a really long time, and, and right. it's a possibility that their new heart might need additional. Yeah, yeah I mean, we tell the kids, we tell them, expect it to last twelve years, and that's the cost average of all the databases. Does it, is it going to last 12 years? Who knows? I mean, some of these kids reject right out of the gates and they're back being retransplanted within four or five years. The sad truth about kids is that a durable finding for the last 25 years is that if you look at the survival curves, there's this acute drop-off and it happens about 10 to 15 years out after transplant and that's when they become teenagers and become non-compliant with their meds. And it's a, I would argue, and I have argued, that that psychological problem is as serious a risk factor for mortality in assessing a given patient's retransplant candidacy as any, you can stack that against any medical 
value you want against renal failure, liver failure, whatever. You look at the actual risk of mortality, it's probably that, that high. And it's tremendous because if you stopped in your meds and you wind up back in the ICU on ECMO or something, then you're doing an urgent retransplant to a kid who's been, you know, who's now on mechanical support, maybe with an open chest, and they're being immunosuppressed. I mean, it's a terrible situation. And we tell patients that the immunosuppression is getting better, which it is. I don't know that it's going to change the survival curves dramatically. I hope it may, but it's just it's impossible to know. Yeah. Clearly, this is a very uh, challenging population, uh, not only from a disease perspective, but also from a device perspective, and then more long-term from a heart transplantation and management perspective. Um, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to meet with me today and discuss this difficult topic and uh, help all of us realize that there's a lot yet to be uh, discovered. Mm-hmm. and. Um, a great experience uh, to be had uh, when used in the appropriate uh, fashion. Thank you very much. Thanks, Cassie.